All right, it's 2020. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, people. We live in the future. Man, the year of perfect vision. Yo, 2020. I can remember like over a decade ago being in a like leadership summit retreat, working on just like projections, forecasting, leadership training, all the things. Yo, my man corporate over here. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you know. Pointing at charts and shit in PowerPoint. Yeah, and it was like a a pie chart too, but it was just a, a chart of all the pies I like. Like 100% of the time, this works 60% of the time, mm-hmm. or the inverse of that. But also, I like pie. And pie. But basically, the the entire like like purpose of that presentation was to like run a projection for the year 2020. It's like, here we are. Weird. It's a real time, real place. Mm-hmm. Insofar as anything exists, yeah. we are here now in 2020. Yeah. Wow, what a tumultuous year 2019 was and mm-hmm. so much more fun lurking around the corner in 2020. Right, right. And next year for, you know, anybody out there who's our age or above, next year marks uh the the year in which when you look at a driver's license for somebody to legally consume alcohol in the United States of America, that date of birth is going to be the year 2000. Yeah, and it's going to change the cigarette age now too. I saw right? that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good good on you America. Yeah, way to do things. But yeah, uh you're old first of all. Yep. Anybody who, for whom the year 2000 has significant meaning like that or who potentially even got Y2K'd mm-hmm. at the time, like you're also old. Know that. Yeah. Whew, gnarly. Man, 2020 uh and we are here starting this year off strong. Yeah, so We got to break you guys off on something amazing real quick. So we are very, very excited to announce our partnership with The Great Courses Plus. Great Courses Plus. And if you guys are not familiar with this platform, I want you guys to open up a browser tab right now and check it out because it is amazing how much content, material, uh, just topics, lessons, lectures, all the things that they have made accessible to people like you and me. And let's be real, uh, you don't listen to the show because you don't enjoy knowing things, right? right? Every single person who's hearing uh, any of these words at, at any point, whether you're a longtime listener or somebody who just tuned in, chances are there's a 100% chance that it's because you're somebody who wants to know things. Yes. It's because you're somebody who's questioning things. It's because you're somebody who has a personal sense of pride about knowing a diverse and broad and deep set of, of topics and we can say without hesitation that this is a 100% Great Courses Plus is a 100% aligned service with that uh, kind of feeling that you have. That is exclusively what they're there for. Yes. Not trying to sell you anything else, not trying to get you to buy merch or anything like that. They're literally just there to let you take some of the greatest courses in the world, mm-hmm. taught by some of the smartest, highest end professors at some of the best institutions in the world yep. uh, at your fingertips 24 7, 365 one of the world's largest, most accessible uh, tomes of knowledge right there at your fingertips. Yeah, and I love, you had said broad and diverse, and man, that could not be more on the money, right? Like they have courses that I know 100% the the listeners of this show are going to connect with, you know, stuff about secret societies, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, uh, tips on like travel photography, cooking, so on and so forth. But like they go down so many rabbit holes within so many different niches, spaces, topics, just everything. If there's a thing out there that you want to learn, you have the ability to obtain that information from a pro in that field through the Great Courses Plus. So we are going to be focusing on a featured course right now, which is really cool. I know, again, everybody listening to the show will definitely connect with this. That course is the Ancient Civilizations of North America. 
right? So there are going to be so many different topics that this course covers, like, you know, thinking about the fact that there are 5,000-year-old pyramids in Louisiana. Right. Uh, like a 1,000 years ago, the ancient city of Cohequia, uh, located just outside modern-day St. Louis, had a population of 40,000, yeah. 1,000 years ago. Right. So we are so stoked to announce that because of our partnership with The Great Courses Plus, you, the listeners and supporters of Lost Origins, are going to be able to get yourselves a nice little deal. So right now, they are offering Lost Origins listeners a solid deal of three months of unlimited access to any course for just 30 bucks, right? That's 10 bucks a 10 month. 10 bucks a month. I mean, uh, like I just recently took the thermodynamics course taught by Professor Jeffrey Grossman. This guy teaches this course at MIT. Yes. Not only could I not get into MIT, but I definitely don't want to be paying the like $70,000, $80,000 a year to try to get access to sit in a lecture hall and on his time or on the school's time, right. watch this course. But the fact that I got to do this, I'll tell you, I would pay far more than that just to take this course. Yeah. And I've taken these two courses, like we were just talking about before this, uh, over the course of a few weeks. Yeah. On my own time, my own yeah. schedule, massive knowledge, 10 bucks per month, three months, 30 bucks. Can't beat it. Crazy deal. Right. And it's unlimited access, which is amazing because if you were to go in and like you had said, pay for these courses individually, it's a night and day difference. And, and you don't hear from us, you know, trying to push a lot of products on you guys. You know, we're not talking about things that are stupid here. This is something that uh, for real, we are going to continue using. Um, and frankly, like we'd love to hear from you. Which courses are you taking? Are, are you taking a course that's similar to one of the other history courses we're taking? This is something that we think we're going to be pretty serious about for a long time, guys. So get involved. So. For you guys to scoop up this offer, if you are on the media section of the website, we have the link right there on this episode's page. Just click it. Otherwise, open your browser. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash Lost Origins, all one word, and enter the coupon code Lost Origins at checkout. And you will be able to scoop that deal, get your learn on, and like CK said, loop back with us. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you are diving into. I feel like there's going to be some good opportunities for future conversations and episodes of the show based on the content that we're digging out of that platform. No doubt. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash Lost Origins. Do it up. So, Today's episode. Drew Legend Man, in the field. Straight up. Today we have Dr. Robert Shock, the moment that all of you have been waiting for. Man, I tried so hard to keep my shit together and not fanboy. I think I did pretty all right. Yeah, I, I will say that he, for somebody who's so used to probably dealing with a lot of people's admiration in this field and being kind of one of the OGs who really helped people start questioning a lot of the timeline mechanics, yep. specifically surrounding ancient Egypt. One of the foremost thinkers uh, on Gobekli Tepe spent a lot of time with Dr. Uh, Anthony West, you know, specifically being, you know, the not just like a lead researcher from afar, but mm -hmm. actually on the ground in the field, helping yeah. with excavation, helping with identification, um, but this guy could not have been more gracious with his time. Straight up. Yeah. Dr. Shock and his wife were incredibly kind. They had to get on a flight and they, you know, stayed with us with their bags, like, yeah. you know, just having a real deal conversation. And I will say that, uh, we learned something in every one of these discussions, mm -hmm. but to learn it from the guy who actually did the research was, uh, pretty incredible. It was such a cool experience. I'm so excited that like, not only did we get to rip through his most recent research and work on Gobekli Tepe, but we also spent a significant chunk of time talking through the book that was released prior to that forgotten civilization, which really places a heavy emphasis on coronal mass ejections. Uh, but also just 
Easter Island, the Moai, all the things. It, it was a really, really cool like departure from the normal Dr. Shock, you know, like the, totally. the ancient civilizations that he's exploring. Uh, and I'm really glad that we were able to pick his brain on that face to face. Yeah. Right. Huge. So for the last time until the next CPAC oh, conference. Oh, CPAC music. Let's cue that CPAC music. Oh, and, and we hardly knew you. I, while, while, while it's playing, you and I can talk about different ways to introduce some other weird shit somewhere else <laughs> as we're moving forward. Here, yeah, here we go. Dr. Robert Schock. My goodness. This show's been a thing for quite some time, several years. There are, I mean, we've been able to have conversations with some amazing minds, but yours is one that I have been on the hunt to make happen forever. Holy hell, thank you for carving time for us today here in California at CPAC. It means the world to us. We appreciate the hell out of you being here. So well, welcome. Th- well, thank you. I appreciate that, and um, I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So, Let's, uh, I was going to say, jump so, in, man. so in most cases, most of our guests uh, need a lot more introduction than you do. Um, I would say in the space of uh, archaeology, um, the study of history, different uh, potential alternative modalities of thinking, you are a luminary. Um, you are a uh, professor at Boston University. You're somebody who's uh, often seen as potentially helping change minds from the inside of academia. Um, you've dealt with a lot of different, uh, I don't know, just insight from within academia in general. But for those who aren't familiar with you, what is the main focus of your work in general? And uh, what are you researching most these days? Okay, so just a little background. I am a Boston University faculty member. Mm-hmm. I'm a geologist. A lot of people don't realize that because they think oh, archaeology, ancient civilizations. But I'm actually a geologist. Sure. My PhD is geology and geophysics. And my main focus for my primary focus, I'll put it that way, for the last 30 years is really been pushing back the origins of civilization, Mm. not because I want to push back the origins of civilization, but because the evidence, exactly, following the evidence. And this began with John Anthony West, the late John Anthony West, who first contacted me in the late 1980s, and I went to Egypt with him in 1990. He wanted a as he called it, open-minded geologist who could look at the Sphinx in particular, look at weathering erosion, because he had gotten the concept from Schwar de Lubitsch that maybe the Sphinx had its origins going back much further than dynastic Egypt. And he wanted geologists, because this was this was and still is a geological question, he wanted geologists to really look at that seriously. I went with Egypt to uh, I went to Egypt with John Anthony West. This was summer of 1990. I was convinced before I went that there was probably all nonsense, but I was going to get a free trip to Egypt. Sure, I've never right? been yeah, to Egypt before. <laughs> um, it turns out, as soon as I got there and saw the Sphinx, I knew within minutes this was not all nonsense, that there was something amiss between the geology, what the evidence of the geology, and what the Egyptologists were saying. Within minutes, too, huh? Within minutes, wow. yeah. Yeah, within minutes. Uh, well, right away I saw that the weathering and erosion on the Sphinx was not compatible with the Sahara Desert conditions that have been there for 5,000 years. You have rainfall, precipitation, 
very straightforward evidence of that, and I could see it immediately uh, once I got there. And so if you've got hyperarid Sahara conditions mm-hmm. for the last 5,000 years, yet you've got this incredible fissures and rolling, what I call rolling, uh, rounded undulation on the body of the Sphinx, and even more so on the walls of the Sphinx enclosure because the Sphinx is carved down into the bedrock, the body, yeah. that there's something wrong there. The Egyptology, which says the Sphinx at the time was saying the Sphinx was 2500 BC, 4,500 years ago, uh, is not compatible with the geology and what we know of northern Sahara, northern Africa Sahara conditions in that region where the Sahara is at the latest, um, I'm sorry, at the earliest, maybe 3,000. More or less, the Sahara is at least 5,000 years old, is what I'm trying to say. So I knew right away it had to be prior to 3,000 BC, which is 500 years earlier than the Sphinx was supposed to be. I saw from the details of the weathering erosion and the amount, et cetera, I instinctively thought it had to be millennia earlier than that. So this was really throwing a monkey wrench, as they say, into the standard timeline. Yeah. So, so that was number one. And I mean, this is within minutes. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. all of within, those epiphanies Within happening. literally the first two minutes is the way I would say it. And the second thing is that the Sphinx the head is too small for the body. And I saw that immediately too, because all the Egyptologists, of course, would contend that, yes, this is a dynastic head. It's how can you say the Sphinx is older? No, I knew within the first couple of minutes that that was not the original head on the Sphinx. And to me, it was very simple from the point of view of geology that there must have been a larger head on the Sphinx. It was highly weathered and eroded, just as the body was. Mm -hmm. But the body, you can see to this day, the repairs that have been made over many millennia, where they took little blocks of limestone, tried to fill in parts, the head, they didn't do anything like that until the 20th century where they put cement on it. Uh, But the head, what apparently they did, and I'm absolutely convinced of this, and happened for, you know, since 1990, the head had become weathered and eroded, so they carved it down into a smaller head because you can only subtract when you're carving. You can only reduce, and that's why the head is too small for the body. When did they do that? I believe based on the evidence, based on the style, that type of thing, early dynastic times. And so, yes, it's a dynastic head, but that's a much later head than the core body. So this really led me on this path of not only looking ultimately at Egypt and the evidence in Egypt for earlier civilization before civilization is said to have existed by the traditional academics, including all my colleagues in academia at the time. But is there other evidence around the world? If you had it in Egypt, could you find it elsewhere? And that's uh, really been the focus for the last three decades for me. And the popular opinion at the time was there's nothing else that has been discovered that that dates back to that same epoch in history. Enter Gobekli Tepe, though, right? I mean, enter Gobekli Tepe, but yeah. one what you have to realize is that Gobekli Tepe does not enter the scene until several years after. I've been talking about yeah. older Sphinx. It, in the earliest 
early 1990s, Gebekli Tepe, the genuine full-scale excavations do not start until 1995. I had already gone to Egypt in 1990, come to this conclusion, talked about publicly at conferences, Geological Society of America, for instance. Caught a lot of flack from other academics who doubted it at the time. Exactly. I persevered too, right? Yeah, so so there were uh, several years there that were literally before Gebekli Tepe had even They'd begun excavations. Of course, the way archaeological excavations are, once they were excavating it, beginning in about 1995, Mm mid-90s, it's not a situation where all of a sudden they announced, oh, we've got this new site that goes back to 10,000 B.C. It took a long time for that data to come together, for them to carry out the excavations, for them to date it, for them to publish on it, for it to make it into both academia and ultimately into the public. Yeah. One thing I've always wondered is before all of that data is released to the public, Dr. Schock, did you and, and Klaus Schmidt have like, had you guys been communicating? Did you, did you guys have any contact prior to him releasing that? Was it on your radar or was it no, just like, no, no, no. It actually wasn't until he was releasing and publishing on yeah. it, that type of thing. And I don't know that he knew who I was or. You but know, it must have been was, must have been vindicating to some degree to oh, have very you much know, be so. able to spend time with Klaus Schmid, uh, John yeah, Anthony West, yeah. walk the site and say, "All right, my work as a forensic geologist, as a geologist in general, yeah. was valid and is somewhat validated by oh. seeing something 9700 BC." Is yeah. Really. Exactly. Oh, I would say much more than somewhat validated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely <laughs> I validated. Yeah, yeah, that there was what I call earlier cycle of civilization going yeah. back to that period. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've done a lot of work with Graham Hancock as well, right? And so he spends a lot of time focusing on the Younger Dryas and the Torrid Meteor Stream impacts and whatnot. And in your most recent book, uh, Forgotten Civilization, you spend a, a significant amount of time talking about coronal mass ejections. Okay? Right. And so maybe for a few uh, few members of the audience who are not ultra familiar with that concept, maybe just like 35,000 foot view, background, coronal mass ejections, just in okay. general, right? Walk so, us so, through so, that real fast. Yeah. So just to correct a few things, I, I, I work based on evidence. I look at evidence <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of talk recently in the last, when I say recently, since about 2007 or so okay. about a comet hitting and that type of thing. I have looked at this evidence very exhaustively. Uh, I just don't think it stands up to hardcore scrutiny. And let me explain that because there is evidence. Some of it is, how do I want to say this? I was about to say fragile, questionable, that type of thing. Other evidence is not actually necessarily definitive of a comet or some other type of impactor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was actually very interested in such things. I wrote about it, speculated about that even before 2007. Mm-hmm. And I have nothing against comets and impactors, that type of thing. But you also, I feel, have to follow all the threads of evidence. And so this is a controversial topic, but I've at this point come down that no it's fear of controversy here. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No fear of controversy. <laughs> that actually the evidence is pointing in a very different direction. So, and there's also an issue of timing. Sure. So, the end of the last ice age is 9700 BC, and that's important because. 
the comet proponents have been proposing a comet not at the end of the last ice age when there was a dramatic warming, but what was happening at the end of the last ice age was it was slowly getting warmer. It mm-hmm. was We were actually coming out of the ice age, but we were still in it. It was still cold enough to be considered an ice age. And then at about 10,900, some people date 10,800, but let's just use 10,900, which I think is a better date for sure. it based on the evidence and based on ice cores and sediment cores, et cetera. Uh, about 10,900, you have a sudden cold snap. Mm-hmm. And so this ice age was starting to get a little bit warmer. Then it gets really cold again. That lasts for about 1,200 years. Mm-hmm. That 1,200-year period is known as the Younger Dryas. Right. And it's the comet people or the comet proponents, if I could put it that way, with no disrespect, sure. that they suggest a comet impacted somewhere over North America or exploded or over North America at about 10,900 or so BC, initiating the Younger Dryas. And part of the thought is it would put up a dust cloud that would cause a cooling effect, et cetera, et cetera. And they pointed to what they call, or what are known as certain types of nanodiamonds mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, carbonaceous spirules and all kinds of different evidence that we don't need to get into great detail here as evidence that some kind of comet was impacting. Hey, there's a couple of problems with this. Uh, you know, actual craters, actual meteorated com- material has not been definitively identified, in my opinion. Uh things like platinum elements have been suggested in the record that's associated with the comet. There's actually other ways you can get concentrations of platinum elements. There's other ways you can get concentrations of nano diamonds, that type of thing. Sure. Uh, recently, uh, ice, um, a crater has been found under Greenland, known as a Hiawatha crater, that some people say, oh, that's the crater from the comet hitting. Actually, the dating on that spans two million years. We don't know that that's actually... A pretty big margin the, of yeah, error the, there. Yeah, right? yeah. margin of error. The same with things like the Carolina Bays. There's a huge margin of error in it. Uh, there's actually a huge margin of error in a lot of the stratigraphy that people have been arguing about that might suggest a cometary impact. Mm-hmm. Then it gets into the extinctions. There's major extinctions toward the end of the last ice age. Most of them are actually 9700 BC, not 10, uh, are some of the major ones. Megafaunal extinctions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are 9700 BC, not earlier, 1200 years earlier. So a lot has to do with the type of evidence, the chronology, whether that evidence is good or not. So to make a very long story, story short on this, Looking at all the evidence and piecing things together, I actually think it was solar activity, anomalous solar activity. And most recently, and this is still my working hypothesis, I have no question it was incredible solar activity that snapped us out of the last ice age in 9700 BC was absolutely catastrophic uh, comet or other bolide impactor, as they call it, meteorite, is not going to all of a sudden warm up the Earth simultaneously. Uh, And the ice core data indicates that that happened not within several years, not within uh, one year, 
but a fraction of a year, as far as we can tell, literally overnight. Yeah, it's so, like a flip of the switch. A almost. flip of the yeah, switch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a major solar outburst, what's known as coronal mass ejection, solar proton events, um, uh, electrical discharges, basically, yeah. uh, plasma electrically charged particles, smashing down, hitting the earth would heat up incredibly quickly, would cause vitrification, uh, that is uh, melting stone and then re-congealing it right away, turning into essentially natural glass. It would right. cause spirals. It could actually, now we know, uh, major uh electrical storms like that, if we could use that term just to be descriptive, could actually cause cratering. In cases, it could flash, um, uh, uh, melt glaciers and evaporate them, essentially. Same with water bodies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing that you find is all kinds of flooding. You find evidence of uh, incredible fires. You find evidence of the vitrification. You find evidence of earthquake activity, which correlates with solar activity, and I, that's been discovered recently. Yeah. You're also, when you're melting, just from a pragmatic point of view, or more intuitive for some people, uh, if you melt huge glaciers mm -hmm. that are kilometers thick, that releases pressure, which then sets off earthquake and volcanic activity. So you have all these things happening. We have that in the geological record, I wanted to get back to flooding, flash flooding and melting of glaciers and rising of sea levels. This is all occurring at that time. Mm -hmm. And one reason is, of course, I say of course, because I'm so familiar with this, sure, sure. but you're melting these glaciers, you're melting bodies of water as literally we can think of as huge columns of fire or plasma hitting the surface of the earth, causing incredible destruction, but you're also putting all this water into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It has to come back down again as precipitation. And I'm a physical geologists. I'm a geologist. I look at physical evidence, but I also do not ignore what when you have worldwide traditions and myths of floods, yeah, deluges, that yeah. type of thing. So it all ties together with a solar event, a major solar event in 9700 BC. Now, getting to the beginning of the Younger Dries, 12,900 BC, we are now finding, and this is is within the last couple of years that all the same types of markers and phenomena that in the past geologists and astrophysicists and whatnot said must be due to a comet, we're now finding that those could be due to a solar event as well. So just within the last couple of years, there's been papers published where uh, uh, geochemists and uh, mineralogy experts, et cetera, have actually looked at fulgurites. What a fulgurite is is where lightning, so think of atmospheric lightning, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. hits the surface of the earth, hits sand or hits soil, turns it into glass, rock, turns into glass exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you start analyzing those, and you get the same markers that people have been assuming had to be associated with a cometary event. So again, there's a lot of evidence there, and I'm not saying that the evidence isn't there, but I'm saying that it, a comet is not the only interpretation sure. for that yeah, evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I then think there is evidence, I'm convinced that there's evidence like beryllium isotopes 
uh, carbon isotopes, et cetera, that you find in sediment cores and ice cores, which you're not going to get with a cometary impact, but you will get that with, with a coronal, s- flare. coronal flares, yeah, coronal mass ejections, solar flares, solar proton events, solar outbursts, a uh, term that's now being used in some cases as a micronova, where the whole surface of the Earth, um, s- surface of the Earth, surface of the sun sort of peels off and th- throws itself out. Because in some cases, a solar outburst, like a coronal mass ejection, may be direct in just one section. That's like one trajectory. Yeah, yeah, one trajectory. If we're in the right place in our orbit, we get hit. But the wrong place. It's a bad bad Um, Tuesday. Yeah, but but (laughs) if you throw off a sheath in all directions, it doesn't matter where we are in the orbit or other planets, they're going to be hit. Mm -hmm. And we have evidence from the moon of... um, of vitrification and solar, you know, outbursts, that Mm -hmm. type of thing. So getting back to the beginning of the Younger Dryas, I want to make this point before I forget. Do it. Um, For a lot of people, it's totally counterintuitive as to how a solar outburst could cause a cooling spell because it doesn't make sense to them. Oh, you know, the sun and fire and plasma hitting. But what you have at 12,000... 900 years ago, 10,900 BC, is a situation where you've got these huge glaciers, especially in North America. They were starting to melt, as I mentioned before, it was starting to warm up. So you had these huge glacial lakes Mm -hmm. that were bound by ice and natural ice dams and whatnot. And if all of a sudden there's a solar, anomalous solar activity that's heats things up a bit, all those ice dams break, all that cold, fresh water melts, it goes into the Atlantic, and this is well documented Mm -hmm. now, and there's evidence that this is exactly what happened, and it changed the currents in the Atlantic, the Gulf Stream, et cetera, and all of a sudden... We are so dependent, the Earth temperature budget, on the ocean currents that it actually flipped some of those and then caused a cold spell to kick in. So it's sort of counterintuitive for a lot of people until they start to think about that, yes, a bit of warming melted these ice dams, broke them apart, dumped all this fresh water, which has a, you know different properties than the saline water, messed up the ocean currents, yeah. wasn't distributing the heat, um, and set in a cooling spell until about 1,200 years later, wow. we were hit by another big one, which at that point then snaps us out of the ice age. So when you talk about these ice dams that are just being destroyed, is that part of what we're seeing, like in, based on the work of like Randall Carlson? Yeah, 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 exactly. Montana. Exactly. So that's why I say you've got some good data there, but it's a matter of how you interpret it and put it into context. So some people don't understand that. I'm not saying all all that data is nonsense. But I didn't didn't take it from you at all. No, no, I know you're not saying that, but some people say, well, how can you ignore all this evidence. Right. I'm not ignoring it at all. I'm saying there's a different interpretation yeah. and an interpretation <laughs> that I think is much more cogent sure. and explains it, explains actually more of the evidence because some of it's not easily explained by a comet theory versus a solar outburst totally. puts mm-hmm. it all together. It's yeah, usually just Trevor that interprets it that way. Anyway, so Trevor, Trevor if you're listening, just, Trevor, just, just stop, chill, stop chill, doing it. Chill, chill, so chill. I know we have very limited time with you today. And yeah, I yeah. Did I was, just want... And I was going to say one other thing is that um, we have 
archaeological evidence, we have petroglyph evidence, etc., yeah. that they were actually seeing things in the sky, and they were engraving them on rocks. They were recording them. I talked about that briefly um, my like talk the yesterday, text of the, like the, the Rongo Rongo yeah. text, which Katie, my wife, um, actually first uh, recognized that those were uh, plasma configurations that people like Dr. Anthony Parat at Los Alamos National Laboratory, you know, probably the foremost plasma physicist for this type of plasma physics at a cosmic level, solar system level, that when you had these events that we're talking about at the end of the last ice age, mm-hmm. people would see these things in the sky, sort of like the northern lights or the southern lights, but much more specific shapes. They sort of looked like dancing stick figures, that type of thing. And they recorded this in ancient yeah, times sure. around the world. So we have numerous lines of evidence from mythology to recordings mm-hmm. physically to the physical evidence geologically that all, to me, are saying the same story and all are compatible and come together. Wow. Yeah, that's so much. It's, it's so I intense. Love, love hearing intense. this from you, from the source, and and just quick shout out to Katie. I, I appreciate who's here um, in the studio with us. Yeah, who's yeah, yeah. here in the studio, sitting off to the side. Um, I know that uh, the two of you um, met at this conference many years ago, and uh, for what it's worth, I really appreciate the fact that two brilliant minds were able to get together, and that you've been able to influence each other and each other's work for so long. Um, I was struck by during your presentation yesterday. Um, what, especially after the uh, Katie may not exist comment that uh, Marshall had on there before. You're like, she definitely exists. And you, but yeah. um, the fact that, you know, you two have been spending so much time at Gobekli Tepe over the over the course of the last uh, decade or two. And, you know, not only were, we did we get to see some amazing photography of Katie's and some of the stuff that the two of you have been researching and working on. But I'm wondering, you know, as a, as a couple or even just you, Dr. Shock, because uh, I'm sure you guys probably think very, very similarly, what is it about, you know, and you, you discussed a number of different things that were very compelling about seeing um, the advancement of a potential civilization that either was associated with the Gobekli Tepe as a site or somehow used it. You've talked about um, the incredible arts that were the relief carvings that were produced there, yeah, especially yeah. on, you know, famous particular stones like the vulture stone in, in Enclosure D and also, then you you posit the idea that Urfa may be, uh, as a city in Turkey, may be actually built upon the ancient ruins of another potential um, urban type of site. But in all of the time that you, you guys have spent there, what to you has been kind of the most either, uh, I hate to use the word magic, but you know, you know what I mean, magical thing that you've felt there or seeing all these different changes there, what has been the most inspirational aspect of your work at Gobekli Tepe? Aside from being able to do it with the person you love and respect, what has been the most enjoyable or inspiring aspect of your work there? Boy, that's a hard question. I, the thing that actually comes to mind is that we had a wonderful, um, we were at, on one of our trips, we were allowed to go there and be there at sunrise. And that was just magical. I mean, that was just really special. It was really just magical. It was Katie and myself and some people who were traveling with us. And we got special permission to go and be on the site and experience it at sunrise, which I think was very magical and personal for us. But it also ties in with what I talked about yesterday during my presentation, that that would have been what they were doing, too, looking at 
where the sun was among the stars on sunrise, looking on the vernal equinox out toward Orion and Taurus and the Pleiades and seeing them rise. And and we very much uh, experience that also. You've got the belt, the belt stars of Orion on one of the pillars, but those belt stars are not just belt stars of Orion, I think, represent. But as I said yesterday, um, with my colleague Manu Saifsade, Dr. Manu Saifsade, we mm-hmm. now are convinced that I'm absolutely convinced that they were literate. They were writing. The translations and, that and you the, went into and yesterday. So I was going into translations. So, for instance, on the belt, I think it actually says God of God. God of God. And there they're looking out on the horizon, on the vernal equinoxes. What they may have seen is the God of God's actually literally rising in the. That's in the uh, so you, you, so. I, I, When I was looking around during your presentation yesterday, there were so many minds that were blown by some of that translation work as well. And yeah, just, I don't know what the going rate at the Marriott is for scooping up brains out of the carpet, but, but it's it got to be, be steep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have literally all the questions for you. I've had like five years uh, doing this show to <laughs> write them all down. We don't have time for them today, so I'm going to just pick the one. And clo- let's, let's do pillar 43 and closure D. Okay, along the top of that, we have the the handbags that are everywhere. Oh yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I just I, I have to know what 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 do you what are no, what the hell no, are those no, things? No, I don't think they're handbags, and I think what do people it. are doing is they're they're actually doing very loose interpretations, and they see things that look somewhat similar. Um, do I know ultimately what they are? Not necessarily, but what I speculate, and I talked about this yesterday, is that what we're looking at is actually solar phenomena. And what we may be seeing there is essentially, um, you could call it, we could call it magnetic arcing, uh, electrical magnetic arcing that you see on the surface of the sun. They're just recording what they see. And they're recording what they're seeing, especially if they were recording things that were very important to them, very impressive to them, and, you know, in times of calamity or things that we're having a very real effect on them. Mm -hmm. And when I start looking at those and look at um, solar arcing as we see it, I actually see, and Katie and I have been looking at this together, a very close you know, depiction of it. If you look at what look like handbags, they're not just squares with a handle Mm -hmm. on top. They're actually that little it's more arc on yeah. it, and there's little animals sort of in front of it. And when you look at some of the images of the sun and what solar arcing looks like, it often has that arcing look, but then it has a sort of a blob, we'll call it, in mm-hmm. front of it, which I think they're representing as little sort of, I don't want to say nondescript, but we, no one even argue, can, no one even agrees as to exactly what animals they are, but they look like little animals sort of running down. Well, to me, that's indicating the movement of the arc and the mm. connections. So, so I, know our listeners I think at it's home a are, much more cogent argument than, oh, it's a hand. It's a hand. Sure. It's yeah. old, old Ikea it's yeah, from Turkey. Turkey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I know our listeners at home are wondering, okay, when you're explaining that, are you talking about in just pillar 43 specifically, or are you talking about you know, the handbags that we see in Sumerian. Uh, no, no, depiction. no, I'm talking about this that, pillar that, that specifically. 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 Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and also, you know, the, I, I'm not going to speculate about the Sumerian handbags. They might be something totally different. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, there's no need to say, oh, they're necessarily the same thing. Or could they be something that was ultimately derived from this concept? Yeah. You know, many symbols have very, many symbols and sort of, um, I know this from Egypt, you know, 
uh, what should we say, tools of authority and the pillars that the the wands that they would hold, that type of thing, they go back to much earlier periods. And in fact, you know, even the people that were using them may have forgotten their very original origins purpose. or original purposes or where what was derived from. But I'm not going to speculate about sure. the Sumerian maybe, ones maybe, right uh, now. Like I said, it may be a simple situation that things look superficially alike and they've been equated. Sounds um, like a separate conversation. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, they yeah. equi- and they've been inappropriately equated. So that that takes more. Well, Dr. Shaw, more research on my part. Sure. Thank you so much for it. We know you have so many things going on, and we appreciate you're about to just jump on a flight, and we appreciate so much um, both you and Katie coming in and spending time with Lost Origins today. For real, um, thank you. Our hope is that as you continue to work on some of your amazing research and some of the other projects um, that you're spending your time on, that we can come back and potentially have a, a longer discussion in the future. I uh, sure. really look forward to that, but thank you so much for yeah. the oh, time You're for very welcome. Like my, I said, I have all pleasure. the questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could go on for days i'm sure i'm okay with it i'm okay i know our audience would be cool with it too so thank you so much for for carving time for us today dr shock it means the world you're very welcome so man robert shock people yeah bucket don't ever say we didn't do anything for you check mark right there just off off the bucket list shocking episode filled with shocking revelations that was really immature but uh i will say the coolest part of that Uh actually happened after the interview um, we were standing around uh, just uh, discussing with them some of the stuff they're doing next. And Robert turns to his wife um, and, you know, she's a pretty serious uh, researcher in her own right. Mm-hmm. You know, does a lot of the work with him, helped write the book, like mm-hmm. super hitter. Um, turned to each other and they basically both remarked that uh, they do a lot of interviews mm-hmm. And that you specifically were, because there's no way I I didn't hit uh, all the notes that you were hitting there. Um, he was like, you were, you know, among the most prepared people to talk about. Like, it's super clear that you live this life, that you are deep in this subject area. And it was so cool to see him acknowledge, you know, how much time you've spent really digging deep in this stuff. And I just thought that had, to, or at least having not discussed it with you afterwards, mm-hmm. I assume that probably hit you like a ton of bricks. Just be like, my man knows that I know this stuff. No, it was really cool. It was really uh, humbling for sure. Um, I've spent so much of my life reading. I mean, cause I, I look at him as like one of the four horsemen, right? Like mm-hmm. when all of this alternative like concepts really came to the front. You had John Anthony West, Graham Hancock, Robert Buvall, and Dr. Shock basically spearing the charge as a squad. I mean, if you read some of the older books, uh, I believe it's Robert Buvall's book, um, Revisiting the Great Pyramid, or I can't remember the exact title of it. Uh, I'll, I'll correct that and throw it into the media page uh, of this episode. But if you flip through that, you leave through it, you're going to see so many photos of the four of them just out there, boots on the ground before it's like before fingerprints of the gods had ever even been released. It was like just the years of research that went into it beforehand. Uh, but yeah, he's been a staple in, in you know, the books I'm reading, the documentaries I'm consuming, the, all the, th- all the content I can get my hands on Dr. Shock for sure. One of the North stars. 
Huge. And just to, you know, get into some of the stuff that, that he discussed there as well. I think just, you know, looking into Pillar 43, um, Enclosure D, thinking about um, just different kind of uh, monoculture mythos, whether it's Sumerians or Maori tribesmen of New Zealand, Olmecs, whatever. You know, just the fact that we're able to see these kind of celestial images, celestial mm-hmm. mechanics, um, images and relief carvings that specifically show some knowledge of celestial mechanics at the time. Really cool stuff. Yeah. And I love that he's not just like staying focused on that specific niche of oh, ancient yeah. history when he, when he really starts getting into like the solar flares, the solar, solar flares and, yeah. and uh, you know, the Rapa Nui people of Easter Island. Like it's just, it's, it's all pervasive. It's global. It's everywhere. And man, to be able to just have a conversation with him face to face, such a cool experience. I cannot wait to get him back on the show and just continue to pick his brain and yeah, have that be a thing. So really appreciate him spending time with us straight up. So next week we are going to be returning to the original format of the show. Uh-oh. Oh, uh, does he even remember that? Yeah. There's going to be, you know, for, for some of our newer audience members, this could be, they're like, why is this interview an hour and a half? What is this? Oh my gosh. Drivel? You guys think I have Drivel? all day? Yeah, we do. Yeah. You just press pause. We'll listen to it later. Yeah. You figure it out, right? Consume it over a couple of days. Maybe you're doing it like after you spend a half hour on the greatcoursesplus.com consuming a, a lecture or whatever, then you jump Great way to combine. Great yeah, way to combine. Right, right. Cross-pollination is healthy. So, But next week when we return to the original format, we are going to be having a conversation with Daryl Sims. So Daryl Sims is a rad, rad individual. And I'm going to try to describe him in a few words. Uh, the Texas Ranger of Alien and Extraterrestrial Investigation. Whew. Yep. Gnarly. So he had a show on, I want to say it was Discovery or History called Alien Hunter. And basically because of an abduction event that happened to him very early in his life, he has been like just driven to go after extraterrestrials and really sort what's happening. Um, and man, he has seen it all. And so this guy, he runs so many different organizations. He, he's done so many different uh, just like interviews and, and all this accumulation of data, working with people all over the globe to really get a sense of the extraterrestrial phenomenon that, that people are experiencing on the daily throughout the globe, whether we're talking lights in the sky, abduction events, um, you know, everything in between. And so we had the opportunity to, you know, pick his brain for about an hour. And next week, you guys are going to get it to go full rip on that bad boy. Boom. Yep. Exciting. Back in action. Yep. It's going to be good stuff. So make sure that you guys smash the subscribe button, do the five-star written review thing, hit us up on social media, go to the website, scoop up some merch, patreon.com forward slash lost origins, all the things all the prerequisites for our new listeners that, you know, these are the things that we need do to it, do. Just guys. Do it, guys. Yeah, it's fine. And uh, tune in next week for that conversation with Daryl Sims. Huge. Yep. So until then, I'm Andrew. I'm CK. And we challenge you to question everything. <laughs>